You're strangely dressed. What a night. Not exactly. A night, what do you mean? I was chosen because I was the bravest, the most worthy. The honor was mine until another came to challenge me to single combat. I pass it to you who vanquished me. Listen, I don't have time to explain it. The true grail will bring you life. The false grail will take it from you. I'm not a historian. I have no idea what it looks like. Which one is it? Let me choose.
Hey everyone, it's Ken. In today's episode, you're going to hear from Dr. Mike Brass. So Dr. Brass is a cybersecurity executive. He's got years of experience. He holds a bunch of different cybersecurity certifications like the CISSP, the CIPP for Europe, CISM, and the C-RISC. He's got a PhD in archaeology from the University College of London. And in today's episode, we're actually going to be talking about how archaeology and cybersecurity relate. So without further ado, let's dive in just like Indiana Jones and learn from Dr. Brass. So thanks again, Dr. Brass, or I'm just going to call you Mike. Uh, thanks again for joining us today. Um, for the audience, we're going to be talking about a number of different things. We're going to be, of course, talking about data privacy and it's, you know, why is it relevant or how is it relevant to security governance? But more importantly, we're going to talk about archaeology and information security and cybersecurity. So, Mike, I actually want to start with start with that one, uh, just because I'm like a huge Indiana Jones fans growing up on those movies. And I know real archaeology is not like that. I wish it was because I'd be totally out of cybersecurity and I'd be totally an archaeologist if it was exciting like that. But how does archaeology and, and kind of the principles around like some of the stuff you might do as an archaeologist, how does that tie into the, the foundational principles or what we often, at least here in the U.S., call the first principles. But how does that tie into principles of InfoSec as well as cybersecurity? Yeah, I get asked that, that question quite a quite a lot. Um, and it's one that I was addressing in a, in a talk that I gave yesterday. It's, um, for anyone interested, it's on my YouTube channel. I It wasn't recorded live, but I recorded a version of it yesterday. So in effect... Um, on the archaeology, so I'll just make a confession. My site is out in the Sudan. I've worked there for on the site for a large number of years. I've excavated uh, there for four field seasons now. And I'm the, the co-director of the project. So when, you, when you're thinking of stakeholder management with information security, it's easily relatable, other things like project management, risk management, program management, et cetera. So for example, within the archeology, span I'm at the University College London, the Institute of Archeology span there. So stakeholders that I'm dealing with are obviously other personnel within the Institute of Archeology. span There's the director of the Institute, somebody who I've known now for 20 years. I, I deal with people from this Sudanese foreign ministry, uh, people from the Sudanese embassy here in London, uh, the antiquities service out in the Sudan, everything from the director there to the, the uh, head of the archaeology department, as well as the inspectors that they sent out on every excavation. There's people from the University of Khartoum who handle quite a few of the advanced logistics without whom the excavation wouldn't go ahead. There's obviously the fieldwork team and the various specialists. Um, so there's all that collaborative work that needs to be organized and undertaken. Um, there at the base of the mountain which we work, they're the villagers who are the custodians of the site. They've been there themselves for an extremely long period of time. So this is their history that's excavating. Um, so there's a lot of community archaeology, there's a lot of heritage work that has to be done. Again, this is, comes back to various forms of communication and understanding. And obviously there's local government officials, other Sudanese scholars, local schools, et cetera, et cetera. So there's everything sitting there, as I was mentioning at the outset. 
from director activities to program project management, risk management, stakeholder management. There's educational activities, um, not just limited to awareness activities, and there's oversight of the actual operational work that happens. Now, in, t in terms of how that relates to what I regard as the fundamental principles of security practitioner, there's, integ there's integrity and knowledge, the impact on the objectives, there's education and the capability to undertake that particular education. You've also got to be a trusted advisor for your audience. You've got to provide various clar clarifications. There are numerous aspects of behavior, obviously focusing objectives and outcomes. And there's a form of data minimization that isn't just, oh my God, there's uh, three versions of this one file. It's making sure that everybody's trained up correctly, that everybody's using the systems correctly, et cetera, et cetera. And this is where I go get into the intersection between what is learned within academia apart from the research skills and what is needed um, at, quite frankly, at all levels, uh, not just within GRC, but all levels of cybersecurity and information security. So I want to pivot now over to the data privacy conversation. So how do, how do data privacy, security governance, like how do these relate and, and why is this stuff so important for organizations in today's world? And over here, um, as some people have picked up from my accent, I'm, I'm South African, but I've been here in the UK for a large number of years. And this means within the UK um, and in wider Europe, there's obviously the GDPR, and that has had worldwide um, impact, including on the California um, uh, Data Privacy Act that's come in, and there's some other activities out in the USA as well. There's and obviously South Korea and other and other parts of the of the world. Whenever I've mentioned data privacy to a lot of security personnel, they've immediately pivoted through to uh, effectively the CIA triad. We've got to protect the data, but somebody else tells me about the regulations. It's not a Maybe from my own background where I've had to get involved in, in GDPR beforehand and my role now where I'm in charge of the data privacy as well. Um, I don't quite take that perspective. There's there's a lot there, everything from the right to be forgotten to obviously being able to secure particular data, but there's types of data that have to be categorized. There's types of data that can't be retained. There's types of of data that simply shouldn't be processed. There'll be times when your organization is either acting as the data controller or the data processor, and, and sometimes both of them. So you've got to understand how this is actually intersecting um, and what you need to do as an organization, as well as what value is it bringing to the monetary aspects of your organization. So how does you know, kind of, kind of to what you're saying, right? P pulling these together, how how does that help contribute to reducing the risk that an organization might have from, let's just say, sensitive data exposure? And if I'm take a recent example as a review in our data protection uh, plan, let's say even with in GDPR, there's there's some leeway that that can be given. So if they're on a particular category, if let's say the UK permits under certain circumstances a particular category of data to be collected for a legitimate purpose. 
but another European country, and I'm just going to choose Germany in this regard because they are extremely strict, they don't permit that. Um, if there isn't an, an awareness within the company of precisely how the GDPR is expanded upon um, or restricted in some ways in, an, in another country, you can easily find yourself requesting information or scavenging information which would actually be illegal under another, com uh, under another country's framework. Um, I shouldn't actually use the term framework there, but in turn, what GDPR allows uh, against certain articles is it allows a country to either clarify or go a bit beyond what is sitting there uh, under that particular regulation. And Germany commonly does this. The UK has done it in, in some kind of aspects, but you can f easily find yourself uh, at variance with what the local supervisory authority deems appropriate or what the national governments in, in particular countries deem appropriate. Uh, so to use one example, Germany does not allow uh, any company to collect any kind of health data, any kind of medical data, uh, unless it is explicitly allowed by that particular individual. Now, of Here's where it gets even more problematic because there's an imbalance of power between a company and an employee. So if a company is actually requesting that an employee provide data and is mandating that it provides, uh, let's say, medical data, um, not only, obviously, in the likes, the likes of Germany simply prohibit that for, from happening, but it means also that an employee can challenge any explicit consent that they have previously given to said company, and it could very well also be illegal. So there's, there's a number of aspects to, to this. So data breaches cause more than just financial loss, as many people know, right? Things like reputational damage. So if I'm an organization out there, how can I leverage like proper security governance to, even if we have a data breach, to essentially keep you know, somewhat of a positive public image still. On this, it actually comes back to a bit of technical just in terms, it comes back to the one point I was mentioning. Um, obviously, have a, a security framework in place, fine. Uh, it comes back to the data minimization that, that I was referring to. Uh, and that is obviously only collect data that you're legitimately permitted to collect, that there is an explicit legitimate purpose to collect that the data, uh, that the collection of said data has been explicitly agreed to by your data subject, or if there is a legitimate interest from a company in holding that data, you better have a very good reason why that may or may not override the legitimate interests of the of the actual data subject. I mean, there's been quite a few British Airways has had um, data breaches which have resulted in reputational damage. It's resulted in huge fines. EasyJet has had this as well in terms of, of the airlines. But ultimately, it's making sure that there is the relevant security measures that are put in place, that you're not ever complicating things, that 
uh, when you're acting as the controller, you've got all your dots in a row, and that includes over proper oversight of any of the processes. I mean, you could be processing uh, the information internally within your organization. There's question marks over what departments would be processing that information. Are they going to be using that information for any purpose that the data subject has not agreed to, in which case you really are exposing your, yourself further? Uh, and if you're a big organization, if you're taking all these necessary steps, then the chance, uh, I wouldn't say the chances of a data breach have been minimized. That's simply not the case. It's that the regulatory inspection and the potential fines and the reputational damage um, is going to be less. Uh, and this includes, have you communicated uh, a large-scale data breach uh, in a timely fashion within the stipulated time frame to your local supervisory authority? Are you cooperating completely? Um, the data, has it been, was it encrypted? Was it pseudonymized? Was it anonymized? And if it is anonymized, then people have a lot less case in, in trying to actually do any kind of lawsuit against yourself. So you've got to put in, in place all, the, all these building blocks and you've got to align it to the GDPR. So Mike, are there any emerging trends that you think are going to have a, a significant impact on data privacy over like the next 12 to 18 months? Everything from supply chain risk management to the obvious of, of AI. I'm thinking for in terms of AI, one thing that has been arising, not just at my company, but at other companies, is receiving emails which have just contained, a, um, let's say, a JPEG image, an, an H or an HTML embedded image, if I put it better like that, which is a QR code, and effectively telling people to scan because this is requested by whoever within the organization, requested by a strategic partner, or by our CEO, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so I'm, I'm seeing quite a bit of that people aren't familiar with. So you've got to take the necessary precautions to, in, in terms of that, because otherwise you, you're giving people some, sometimes keys to your, your kingdom, or you're giving them enough rights that they can get into your organization, pivot, do lateral movement, etc. In terms of supply chain uh virtually everyone listening to this obviously there's there's solo wins out in the out in the usa from some time back but within here um there's the nis2 directive and that is putting a lot of focus on the supply chain risk management uh whether you're the nuclear industry whether you're sitting with the german automobile industry or the industry in any of the other Euro European countries. And that is, let's just, let's take the automobile industry as, as an example. If you manage to penetrate through into that, you can obviously get data on various customers. You can disrupt the production lines that are happening. Uh, you could potentially disrupt the, the sensors that are driving those production lines. Uh, if you get in if you get into sensors or other equipment on those production lines, you could piece together people's movements within the factories and therefore reveal, I start revealing identity of those particular individuals, which you could then map um, to information that you're gathering 
elsewhere ab about the company and therefore you can start targeting those individuals. So th these are th the threats that very much seen and thankfully the regulatory authorities in the EU are also agreeing with this and are starting to take appropriate action. So Mike, any, any final thoughts for advice for the audience out there? I mean, it could be around data privacy, security governance and or even archaeology. And on the archaeology front, so I addressed just a couple of, of them on that. It's it's multidisciplinary skill sets effectively that you've got to bring to bear to make information security, uh, business security. So within the adult uh, social care system uh, here in England, they recently released a cybersecurity strategy. They came up with five pillars of it. I took a look at those five pillars, and the, I've heard every single word of this before. Um, it was it was nothing new. Obviously, what's new is when it gets into the tech the strategic, tactical, and operational aspects of implementing those particular pillars. But in order to do that, uh, say people have got to be operating according to certain fundamental principles. And if they do that, they, they are gaining more leverage within, within their companies. Um, so what do I actually mean by these principles? I'm meaning uh, values, guiding behaviors, and, and actions. I'm also, when I've expressed this view before, not necessarily in the meeting uh, yesterday, people have come back to me and said, well, what about CISSP? What about the likes of, of CISM, et cetera? That's a bit different. The CISSP is about security assurance concepts. And this is why I've issued a, a call effectively, both in my talk yesterday and on an article on the ISC squared uh, platform, uh, documentation platform back in, in March, that actually the CISSP and even CISM, they need to be enhanced to look at guiding behaviors and guiding actions behind anything that's behind the technical operations. They need to be looking at the leadership principles that, that people have, have to hold. Um, and this also goes beyond things like the CIA triad because there is value in the CIA triad, in my opinion, but its value and its origins lie in much more in the tactical operational side. So I'm wanting to take a step back and a step upwards and say, what are we wanting to do? How with our diverse backgrounds and everybody will have a different background, how can we bring each and everybody's skill sets to bear on what is an extremely diverse subject? I'm not one of those who thinks that everybody has to be coming up through um, help desk, service desk, um, having to do network plus security plus having to come up a predefined pathway. Um, there are people that come into information security with a wide variety of backgrounds, not just in academia uh, on here. And the other point that I wanted to, to make, and I do expand upon this a bit in talk, is when you're looking at behaviors, a lot of the underlying fundamentals on that, um, to some extent, it's looking at adverse behaviors. It's looking at patterns that deviate from um, the norm that can potentially cause damage to value creation processes of, of our business. And there's an underlying basis of that, yes, in, in criminology. But in actual fact, um, 
what is human behavior? What's the study of human behavior? The study of human behavior is anthropology. How does that relate through to archaeology? Well, in the USA, um, archaeology is a subdiscipline of anthropology. It's looking at human behaviors in the recent and far distant past. And here over in the UK and in parts of Europe, it's the first cousin to anthropology. So if if a person is wanting to get to grips and into understanding social behaviors and to get a broader perspective on how that might relate to behaviors within their own company, then I strongly advise them to pick up a couple of social anthropology books or sociology books. Thanks for listening to the show. If you're looking to secure your business better or build up your cybersecurity career, then check us out over at cyberlife.tv. That's C-Y-B-E-R-L-I-F-E dot T-V.